Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you guys. Can I just say, you guys look better and better every time I see you. I don't know what you guys are doing. If it's a new face wash or whatever, it just looks excellent. Keep it up. You guys are doing great. Hey, we're going to be continuing in our series in James. We're going to be in chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Um, last time, before I spoke, uh, Pastor Brent came up to me and said, hey, are you nervous? I know it's your first time speaking here. And I was like, no, nah, man, I got this. After you've done horrible one time, you're not really worried about it because you're like, how could it be worse than that? And so this week, he's like, you know, since it's so easy for you, I'm going to give you one of the most, like, debated scriptures in the whole Bible. See what you can do with it. I'm like, awesome. Here we go. Here we go. So, but no, I'm just kidding. It's good to be with you guys. I'm so excited, but we have a lot to cover in a short amount of time. So let's just jump in. We're going to be starting in verse 14. It says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now someone may, now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he'd offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. I think I could just stop there, amen. <laughs> That's it. Uh, let's go ahead and pray this morning. God, right now, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've done and what you're continuing to do in our lives. I pray that we would be known as a people that are holy, that are set apart, that are after you like no other people before. God, I pray that people would be drawn in not because our music is cool, not because the speakers are fun, but because your presence is here that we'd see lives changed and you would make much of yourself in this place, that the world would be never the same and it would begin right here with us. In your name I pray, amen. I think it's important before we talk about faith and works to get something straight. God knew that we would rebel. So he devised a plan to pursue us and Christ exited his throne and entered into humanity. He knew the work that he was set apart to accomplish. In fact, in John Chapter 17, verse 4, it says, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus went to the cross in our place and suffered the punishment we deserve, that we might receive salvation. Everything Jesus did is everything that needs to be done. On the cross, he even said this by, in his final breath, saying, it is finished. It is, it's not Jesus plus baptism. It's not Jesus plus a good life. It's not Jesus plus speaking in tongues or trying harder or tithing or anything else because it's, it's Jesus plus anything ruins everything. It's all Jesus. It's only Jesus. It's always Jesus, 
and it's Jesus alone, amen? We are not to do anything. We are to trust the one who has done everything. And the Bible calls that faith. Even the guitars agree, man. They're like, let's bow down before the Lord. <laughs> Just as if my iPad or my cell phone was going to die, I plug it into its power source to bring it back to life. So we that are spiritually dead, through faith, plug into God so that we may be spiritually alive. Jesus' work, Jesus works for us, begins a work in us. And so James is going to talk about this. And James is a pastor in Jerusalem. Pastor Brent mentioned last week that he was Jesus' little brother. And in this chapter, he's dealing primarily with people who have been going to church for a very long time. They know all the songs. They've heard all the sermons. But they're not doing anything. So he's going to clarify for them what Jesus' works are and what their works are. So we're going to talk real quick about three types of faith. And they're going to break down into three different categories. And two of those kinds of faith are counterfeit. Spoiler alert. The first one is this, dead faith. So he's writing to religious people. Reading back through that scripture, it says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say that you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? That's a very significant question. We're saved from Satan and sin and death and hell and torment and the wrath of God. We're saved from the wrath of God. So being saved is incredibly, incredibly important. James asks, can that kind of faith, that kind of dead faith, can it save you? And then he goes into a case study. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing. This would be like us going through our week. And as we're going, we see this kid constantly going to the bus stop that has no coat. And it's raining and he's shivering. And we just move on. Or we have a, um, a single mom in our small group, and you know that she's hit hard times, and she's run short on money, and she doesn't know how she's going to feed her kids. And we say, that sucks, and we do nothing. This is the problem, because religion, it says a lot of things, but it doesn't do anything. And this verse says, and you say goodbye, and have a good day. Stay warm, and eat well. It's a re religious hyperbole. Maybe you go up to this person and you quote a little verse and you give them a little, when God closes a door, he opens a window. Or, God has great things for you. Just trust in Jesus. I'll be praying for you. I'll be praying he gives you a coat. But here's the problem. God already did it. And the coat that he gave them is sitting in your closet. If you pray the prayer, and you have the ability, answer the prayer. And this is what's hard. Religious people can be, can I just be honest, they can be so annoying. Because this, this verse even talks about it. But then you, you don't give that person any food or clothing. So he follows this with a really good question. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. You guys know what dead people do? It's not a trick question. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what dead faith does? It does nothing. In the words of Conor McGregor, it does absolutely nothing. Dead faith is all lip service and no lifestyle. This is like a guy who comes to you and says, I love my wife. Cool, do you spend time with her? No. Do you, do you, do you search her heart? No. Um, do you live with her? No. Then, dude, you don't love her. Well, don't judge my heart, man. Well, that's hard because the problem is your heart is leaking into your life, and we can see it. We can see it. 
this kind of faith has no fruit. You don't give, you don't serve, you don't care, but you believe in God. This is classic, lazy, the Bible calls it lukewarm, lifeless religion. And some of us have even gotten a little bit theological about it, and we have arguments about why we're fruitless. You know what? Uh, Here's the problem. You can be baptized in the church. You can grow up in the church. You can sit in the church every week, close your eyes, and wake up in hell. Because religion, it doesn't save. Christ saves. It's not what you do. It's about what Jesus does. And if you choose to trust him. A good tree bears what kind of fruit? Good fruit. A bad tree bears what kind of fruit? Bad fruit. Some of us are like that. It's, almost, it's honestly only a matter of time before Jesus is going to come back. And the Bible says he's going to chop us down. And he's going to burn us up because we're a bad tree. And we don't bear good fruit. We have dead faith because it's not rooted in Christ. It's, not, it's rooted in morality. It's rooted in religion. And there's no life in it. There's no life living in you and working through you. It's fruitless. You guys feeling encouraged this morning? <laughs> well, I, I hate to break it to you, but James gets even harsher. It's going to get worse here for a second. Back starting in verse 18. Now, some may argue. You know why? Because theological people are so good about arguing and not doing anything. I'm not doing it because I read the Bible and it says not to do anything. Can I just tell you guys, using the Bible to excuse your disobedience in the, to the Bible is not rightly using the Bible. Now, the verse continues. Now, some may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. You know, we really believe in diversity and pluralism, and you can have faith and all have actions, or you can have actions and all have faith. It just works out. But James says that's not true. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Now, there's these two groups having an argument in this passage, and they've been having this argument for over 2,000 years now. And they're broken into two groups. The first one is the works minus faith people, and they're saying, you can earn your salvation. Just do more. You don't need Jesus. Go to Mecca. Be a good person. Try harder. Pay off your karmic debt. Give your 10%. Speak in tongues. Get baptized. Just do something. And can I just tell you, every religion except for Christianity says that you are your own savior. Every morning when you wake up and look in the mirror, you're your own savior. And can I just tell you, that's terrifying. I don't know about you guys, but I know my armpits stink. And I know that I can't, I can't do it on my own. I'm not that great. I can't save myself. And so what happens when we look to ourselves as our own savior is we're either filled with pride or despair. We have so much uncertainty and anxiety because we can't accomplish it. So that's the faith people. Um, that's, and then there's the other people that are the faith people minus works. And they say, you know what? We all just need to calm down. We don't need to pray because God's sovereign. We don't really need to do anything because God's going to take care of it. We don't need to fulfill needs. We don't need to serve. We can just sit here. Uh, maybe we'll write some books. Maybe we'll have some arguments. But you know what? We really don't need to do anything because if we do something, then we're like those religious people. You know, the Pharisees, have you heard of them? We don't want to be like them, so we're going to do nothing. 
James says that both these people are wrong. In fact, he compares them to a demon. And can I just tell you, and this is, this, I don't like saying this, but then I probably should say it because I feel like God told me, is there are versions of Christianity like this today that are either do everything and don't, you don't need Jesus or trust in Jesus, you don't need to do anything. And the Bible says both those views are demonic. Demonic. A lot of times we think of a demonic stuff like those horror movies that are on Netflix, but no, this is, this is what the Bible describes as demonic. And can I just tell you, there's this kind of, I just feel like this was mentioning because I'm a millennial and so I see this all the time. There's kind of this informal third way and it's the graded on a C. I got a C. Life's graded on a curve. I don't really need to change anything because I'm a pretty good person. I don't do the booger sugar. I haven't killed anyone. So I'm pretty sure I'm just going to slip into heaven. Just make it. It's going to be okay. A lot of us, how many of you guys know, there's a lot of people out there that think they're a pretty good person. You guys know what I'm talking about? But James says this, you are like a demon. And that's not very encouraging. You know, it's not very often I have people that go to the Christian bookstore and say, man, I saw the uh, seven steps to a new you and the you're a demon, and I wasn't sure which one to pick. (laughs) This kind of faith is not saving faith. It's demonic faith that approaches God the same way the demons do. He says, oh, you believe in one God. Congrats. You're a monotheist. That's great. Even the demons are monotheists. You can have an understanding of Jesus without an affection for Jesus. In fact, we see this all the time in the Gospels. People who don't know Jesus, but the demons do. His family doesn't know who he is. Even his disciples don't know who he is. He calls them dull, and I'm pretty sure they weren't offended because they were so dull they didn't catch on. It was fine. Even the religious people whose lives were spent looking for Jesus didn't recognize who Jesus was. But in verses like Mark 134, it says, but because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. Or Luke 4, through 34, once he was in the synagogue, a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit cried out, shouting, go away. Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. Or Luke 4, 41, many who... Pos- Many were possessed by demons, and the demons came out at his command, shouting, You are the Son of God, because they knew he was the Messiah. He rebuked them and refused to let them speak. That's crazy. His own family didn't know who he was. His own disciples didn't know who he was. Religious people didn't know who he was, but the demons knew. Now, here's three quick uh, aspects of demonic faith. One, it has information, but not transformation. Do demons become Christians? No. But do demons know who Jesus is? Yes. So they know who Jesus is, and they still go to hell. This shows us that you can know who Jesus is and go to hell because you need more than just information. You need the information to result in a life transformation. Now, some of you could probably pass a test and get 100% on who Jesus is. You're just like the demons. They know everything about God. But here's the problem. Faith isn't a just fill-in-the-blank type test. It's a fill-in-the-life kind of test. It's not just what you know, but it's what the knowledge does to transform you. Number two, demonic faith knows about Jesus but does not love Jesus. You are the Holy One. You are the Son of God. We know who you are, the demons said. But what they didn't say is, we love you. We're so glad to meet you. We want to become more like you. We want to follow you. They don't love him. 
So I want to ask you this. Do you love Jesus? Has he changed you? Is he continually changing you? And the third and last one is, it's rebellious and not repentant. You are the Holy One, the Son of God, and we're not going to do what you say. We're not going to bend the knee. Some of you know who Jesus is, and you still willfully disobey. You're like a demon. Dead faith does not produce fruitful living. Demonic faith is entirely exclusively theological and theoretical. It's not practical, or, and it's not actual. The demons in the New Testament have a theology of Jesus that is better and greater than a multitude of books that you'll find in a Christian's bookstore. In fact, even going farther, they know more about Jesus than probably many Bible college and seminary professors do. When they talk about Jesus, they know what they're talking about and they get it right. And some of us live in a world of theoretical and theological, and we use the scriptures to explain away and defend our, fruit, our fruitless, faithless life. So now that we've talked about what this passage means when it talks about faith that isn't true, let's talk about real faith, faith that's dynamic. It says in the next part of the scripture, how foolish. Now, some of us think we're pretty smart, and you're probably thinking, why is this guy yelling at me? I'm really smart. And then you look over, and you're like, oh, he's probably yelling at this person next to me. Okay, carry on, dude. They need to be yelled at. In this portion of the scripture, he's echoing the wisdom literature. That's like Proverbs, Psalms. Um, Ecclesiastes. A lot of the Bible talks about holiness and unholiness, but the wisdom literature talks about folly and wisdom. He says, you know what? This is foolish, and I want you to be wise, because you can be a Christian, you can be a believer, and still be foolish. How foolish? Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? And so he's going to continue on and give us two case studies, one about a guy named Abraham and one about a lady named Rahab. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions work together. His actions made his faith complete. I don't want you to pay attention to that word complete because we're going to come back to it. It's super, super important. And so it happens just as the scriptures say. And he's going to go back and he's going to quote this massive part of Genesis that's so important. And it's echoed through the whole Bible, this huge concept and theme. And Abraham, to the Jewish people that he's writing to, is this huge, towering person of faith. He's someone that they all look up to. They've spent their lives learning about. And it says, Abraham believed God, and it counted him as righteous because of his faith. So there you see his faith. He's even called the friend of God. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that, wouldn't that be something cool to be known as, the friend of God? So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do and not by faith alone. Now, if you're here and you've done things that you're ashamed of, the Bible talks about God, God loving people like you and like me, people that, that have failed, that have done things they're ashamed of. Because here's the real problem with religion. It says be a good person and save yourself. But here's the problem. What if you're not a good person? What if you've been a bad person? What do you do now? It talks about Rahab, who was a prostitute. And do you know what it was like to be a prostitute thousands of years ago? No better socially than it is today. I'm just going to let you know. You think Rahab's going to die and go before God who's holy and righteous and, and say, God, I think I earned my salvation because 
Although I was a prostitute, I was a really good prostitute. I was really nice. I don't, I don't think she's going to do that. <laughs> so here's what's awesome. If God saves, that's the most loving thing. It's the most hopeful, and it welcomes the worst sinners like you and like me. Rahab is another example. She was shown to be right by God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. He says, you know, have you heard of Rahab? Do you know Rahab? She was a sinner, and everyone around her knew it. She wasn't one of God's people. And then God's people showed up in town, and God's people were in danger, and they were going to lose their life. So Rahab, in that moment, was converted. They were going to lose their, their life, so Rahab did what she needed to do. She identified with God's people, and she realized that her life was wrong, and she immediately started making changes. What he's saying is, as soon as Rahab was converted, you could see it. Her life started to change. She wasn't perfect, but she was different. Friends, Christians aren't called to be perfect, but they're different, and they're on the path to perfection that ends with the resurrection, which is where we will see our perfection. What Rahab did is she endangered herself by helping God's people escape. She identified with God's people. She changed. She served God's people and God's purposes. She didn't say, hey, I trust the Lord for you, so I know you're in danger. Good luck. She said, I'm here to help you because God changed my life, and God loved me, and God served me, so I'm going to help you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to serve you the way that God did for me. It's God's work for me that ends up allowing God to work through me. Going back to Abraham, Abraham was to be a father. He was promised, but the problem was he had no children. And so God promised him a firstborn son. And they waited a long time, a really long time. In fact, it was a miracle that he had a son because of their old age. They were like 40, I think. Uh, that's, sorry, that was a terrible joke. Um, and as his son grew up and became a young man, God told Abraham, I want you to go up and offer your son as a sacrifice. What's crazy about this is a father would kill his son. This is a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus. When Jesus was born, he would be greatly loved and he would be the son of the promised line of Abraham. All of it points to Jesus. What the Bible says in Genesis is they all went and Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac in obedience to the Lord. In fact, Isaac literally carried the wood to be burned. He carried his own wood, just like Jesus carried his own cross to the place of crucifixion and his execution. And in faith, Abraham was going to sacrifice his only son. But then God intervened through the angel of the Lord. In fact, a lot of people actually think it was Jesus who said, don't sacrifice your son. There's an animal as a substitute, but on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Meaning that, hey, you don't need to do this, but one day the Father's going to offer a sacrifice that'll be the salvation of all. That'll be the substitution for every sinner like you and like me. What James is saying, particularly to these Jewish Christians who are in Jerusalem attending this large church that they've attended every day, is what, what would have happened if Abraham said, ah, it's okay, 
I don't need to do anything. I have faith. It's good enough. Faith is not just what we believe internally. It's how we behave externally. I went swimming uh, last summer with a buddy, and he brought his kids with him. And it was the most interesting thing because we're, we're swimming around, we're doing things, and his, his kids are, you know, kind of nervous. It was kind of funny. They're, like, sitting on the edge of the pool, and the water's probably from here to there, and they're, like, nervous as I'll get out. So they're, like, walking up, walking back, walking up, walking back. And so my friend walks up to his kid, and he says, hey, go ahead and jump, and I'll catch you. His kids are like, no, no, I'm Okay. Thanks anyways, Dad. And he's like, well, well, do you trust me? And they're like, yeah. Yeah, Dad, I think I trust you. And he's like, okay, then trust me to catch you and jump. And they're like, oh, I think Mom's sitting over there. I think I'm going to go over there. It's cool. They didn't trust because their actions proved that they didn't trust. What he's saying here is Rahab trusted in the Lord and you could see it. Abraham trusted in the Lord and you could see it. When the father told them to jump, they jumped, and he caught them, and that's what faith is. Now, I'm going to end this by talking about an important point that um, is interesting, and I don't know, I don't know if uh, it'll be as interesting to you guys, but I think it's important for us to know. We're going to talk about, does James contradict Paul? And the reason why I want to talk about this is because there's been many denominations, many churches, many books written, all these things about this one issue. And the fun thing about preaching through books of the Bible is it forces you to deal with problems that you really didn't want to do. So as I was reading this, I was like, you know, I really would not prefer to talk about this. But since that's where the Bible brought us, that's what we're going to talk about. How many of you um, have heard uh, this from somebody? They walk up to you and they say, hey, uh, the Bi I don't believe the Bible because the Bible has a ton of contradictions. Have you guys heard that? You know what's fun about that? I've heard that. For like the last 10 years, and I always do the same thing, you know, and it hasn't failed me yet. Because every time they say that, I'm like, oh, that's cool, man. Where? And they're like, uh, you know, I don't really know. And I'm like, okay, so the Bible isn't the contradiction. You're the contradiction. I, I see. I'm catching on here. When we come across a passage that has a contradiction, we need to look at it and study it. And here, a lot of people make the accusation that there lies a contradiction. In James 2.24, it says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Um, and we read Paul even, right, in Romans 3.28, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So you're saying those literally say the opposite things, so which is it? Let's say you're in a doctor's office, and you walk up, and I'm just going to use this because it just happened to my dad the other day. You walk up, and you're like, hey, I broke my arm, and so he's going to tell you, hey, I'm going to cast it up, and it'd be really good if you didn't use that arm for a while. Like, why don't you just rest, ease up, it's going to be good. He goes over to the next door, and there's a person who's, you know, morbidly obese, and they're having some issues, and they need to get healthy, and he's going to say, hey, I need you to be really active. I need you to run, I need you to exercise, I need you to eat differently, I need you to continue to move. Is that a contradiction? No, because they're different patients. It's not a contradiction when you consider who the patients are because the patients end up allowing the diagnosis to make sense. James is writing primarily to religious people who don't do anything. And Paul is writing to non-Christians and newly converted pagans, and they're all terrified. They're different patients with different problems, so they require different treatments. 
Paul is primarily focused on how we become Christians, and James is primarily focused on what it means to live as a Christian. So I have five real key points for you on how to reconcile Paul and James. The first one is this. Friends don't need to be reconciled. In Galatians chapter 1, it says that Paul took long trips to visit James in Jerusalem. Can I just tell you, you only take long trips to visit people that you enjoy talking to. That's why I don't see my in-laws too often. I don't know, this kind of thing. Oh, I think she's actually watching this. I take that back. It was a, it was a terrible joke. Uh, man, I'm glad we're visiting my mom today. This is bad. Um, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, When I became a Christian, I felt like I was supposed to become a pastor. I needed someone to examine me and approve me and lay hands over me and commission me. So I went to Jerusalem to meet with James. James is Paul's pastor. Through Acts, Paul makes many journeys to see James. They're friends. And can I just tell you, if you read the, if you read the Bible, you're going to find out real quick that Paul's not afraid to have conflict with people. In fact, he even mentions it. He had conflict with Peter. He says, I put my finger in Peter's chest because I told him, you're being a racist and you're not acting in accordance with the gospel. Peter was at this point where he was getting pressured to only hang out with Jews and no one else. And so he begins to fall for it. So James, as a good friend, shows up and be like, dude, you're being whack. Knock it off. <laughs> being crazy. And never says that Paul, and never mentions in the Bible Paul and James having any arguments. And they met together all the time. Paul would go and meet with James and tell him what God is doing, and James would give him counsel. So don't just look at the words that they wrote, but look at the relationship that they have. If you were just to take, I don't know, it's kind of the, the culture that we're in now. If you were just to take like a random text for me and my wife and, and not have any context for it, you might be like, man, they don't really like each other. <laughs> but if you look at the whole relationship, you can see that there's love there. And so it's important to, to look at the whole context of the relationship. Secondly, James emphasized horizontal faith while Paul emphasized vertical faith. Paul is, how do you get your relationship right with God? And James is focused on, once you're in the right relationship with God, how's that, how does that affect community and relationships and loving people and serving people and helping people? Once you're connected with God, God wants you to connect with people so that you can love and serve them the way that he loved and served you. Number three, James emphasized the end of salvation and Paul, the beginning of salvation. Paul is saying, you're, you start your relationship solely by trusting in all that Jesus has done. And James is saying, and 40 years later, when you're looking back, you can see that your life has been changed. If you come to me and ask me, Pastor Ty, how do I know if I'm a Christian? I'm going to ask you two questions. The first one is this, do you know Jesus? And the second one that's just as important is, what has he done in your life? How have you changed? Because you can't meet Jesus and not change. That's not one of the options. Number four, James emphasizes religious and lazy people, and Paul emphasizes the lost. Religious people say things like, I was in a Bible study years ago, and I got all my questions answered, so I put my Bible back down, and I go to church, you know, maybe twice a month. It's cool. They're indifferent because ritual has become their routine. If you... If you've been a Christian for a long time, it's pretty easy sometimes to forget what it's like to live in the terror of hell. I had um, a girl in my first youth ministry that literally every week she would show up and she would start crying and she would freak out and she'd run up and say, hey, I need to become a Christian. Can you pray with me? Here's why this is so funny to me. Imagine 
Like, guys, if you came home, and every time you came home, your wife came running up to you and crying and weeping and saying, we need to get married today. And you're like, babe, we've been married like 27 times in like the last like four weeks. What are you talking about? But she's like, but I feel like we're unmarried today. We had a fight. I feel like we're unmarried. She's like, look, we're married. It's all right. You don't need to put the wedding dress back on. Like, we're good. Some of us, as silly as that sounds, approaches our relationship with Jesus the same way. Jesus, I did something wrong this week. You hate me. You, you're going to send me to hell. I need to come back and I need to get saved again. And Jesus is like, no, you don't. Like, calm down. I'm a loving groom and the church is my bride and I'm not filing for divorce. Just take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. Lastly, James emphasizes complete faith and Paul competing faith. That's the difference between works that complete with faith and works that com- complete faith. Guys, when I, when I married Rachel, I didn't just marry her, but now I live with her, and that completes our covenant. James 2.22 says this, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. They're talking about two different kinds of faith here. Now, I want to get to, like, the really, like, the really hard-hitting verses that these actually talk about. So we're going to pull up James 2.26 and Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And what's interesting to me is when people have this debate and they pull up Ephesians 2, they never bring up verse 10 for some reason. They always bring up just 8 and 9 and they skip over 10, which is super weird. But James 2.26 says this, faith, faith apart from works is dead. It says faith and then it talks about works. You don't work your way into faith. Your faith works itself out in your life. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, it says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Jesus Christ. Here's what's important. So we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. Did you see that? God saved you. There's nothing you can boast about. He did it for you. And part of him making, saving you is making you a new creation so that you can do the good things that he planned for you a long time ago. Not works so that you can make yourself a Christian, but works that show that you belong to Christ. Boy, man, you've really changed. Yep, that's Jesus working in me. He's working through me. I'm not changing because I have to. I'm changing because I want to. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone to, good, to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for you. And can I just tell you, that results in the greatest joy that you will ever find. Internal devotion, which is our faith, produces external devotion to God. That's our works. Because a good tree bears what? Good fruit. There's nothing you can do to fix yourself and please God. You need to stop whatever you're doing and simply trust in Jesus. But can I tell you guys, God has prepared good works for each and every one of us to do. There are people for us to love. There are people for you to talk to about Jesus. There are things you need to learn. There are ways for you to grow. There are desires that need to be changed. There are, there's generosity for you to share. There's a kingdom for you to serve. There's a mission for all of us to be a part of. Love for Jesus and his people and love for the, word, uh, for the world compels us into action. 
It's the same love that got Jesus off his throne. It's not, it's not us. It's Christ in us. And that is the hope of glory. Now you guys know why you're here. Why you were born. And what, you, and what your experiences are going to be used for. The gifts that you have. The opportunities that you find yourself with. It's because God has prepared good works for you to do. And here's the good news. God doesn't need you. God is like that loving father who brings his, his young children along with him and says, you know, it would be easier if I just did this myself, but I love my kid and I want to do this with them. When we do things, it's not because God needs us. It's not because God is depending on us, but we get to be in that loving fatherly relationship with our, with our heavenly father where he takes us alongside him and allows us to be part of the process. God loved you so much that he not only changed your life, but he changed your purpose. He's created things for you and for me to do. Amen.